You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, please like and subscribe. I'm delighted today to be joined by the brilliant Daniel Chandler, who has written a fantastic book, which you are all going to go in order, called Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like?, which draws on the philosophy of John Rawls. We're going to explain who that is and why that matters and why philosophy matters. I'm also going to create a fair society from scratch in the space of 15 to 20 minutes. So no pressure, Daniel. (laughs) Daniel, firstly, just kick off. Philosophy. A lot of people might think, look, I've got everyday issues. I've got to pay my bills, uh, housing crisis, uh, lack of, you know, my pay's falling. The world's falling apart. Philosophy's a little too abstract. Why does it matter? And who the hell is John Rawls anyway? Okay, great questions. Well, so look, I wrote the book, I mean, because I was also worrying about all the kinds of problems that you're pointing to. And I think, you know, it's easy to point to the problems that we face today, whether that is the culture wars or lack of trust in democracy, poverty, inequality, you know, the the list goes on. Um, But I think what is missing from our public debate and what's really surprisingly hard to find is a coherent picture of what a better, fairer society would actually look like. I think it feels particularly at the moment like we're just being buffeted from one crisis to another without a longer term sense of direction. Um, you know, I think that's true across the political spectrum that we kind of lack these the ideas that we need to think about where we want to go next. But I think it particularly affects progressives. And, and that matters because you know, we're in a moment where the ideas of Thatcher and Reagan and you know, neoliberalism effectively, that have dominated since the 1980s, really are falling apart. There's a a huge appetite for something different. And yet I think progressives really have struggled to articulate a really systematic alternative that could take neoliberalism's place. Uh, And I think it's in moments like this where we have lost our sense of direction, uh, that philosophy can really come into its own and help us think about what our values as a society are and and where it is that we want to be heading. But part of the challenge that we face is that, you know, it's it's not knowing exactly where to look for that kind of inspiration. You know, whereas, whereas I said, Thatcher and Reagan could look to thinkers like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. I think it's not clear where we should look for that kind of inspiration today. And the premise for free and equal is, um, is as you mentioned, this, you know, this philosopher John Rawls, the idea that his, his ideas are really the ideas that we need today. And they're in a sense hiding in plain sight because Rawls is by far the most important uh, and significant political philosopher of the 20th century. He's routinely compared to thinkers like Plato, Hobbes, Kant, John Stuart Mill. So, you know, he's really up there in the the canon of great Western thinkers and yet sort of surprisingly little known outside of academia. And part of the aim in my book is to really take his ideas out of academia where they've been kind of moldering and not uh, getting enough attention and into our public debate where I think they have an enormous amount to offer and really provide an unparalleled resource for rethinking the future of progressive politics. Um, and I think what's exciting about Rawls is that, you know, his ideas aren't just interesting philosophy, they're genuinely useful. And uh, in the book, I try to show how they can 
um, or use his ideas as a framework to bring together a whole set of practical proposals for how we could you know, transform the way we organize our democracy, change our education system, and maybe most importantly, develop a new economic model that's not only more equal, but more sustainable and more humane. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think that that's... Sorry, you go on. Maybe you can cut that bit. No, no, no. D democracy, <laughs> I was going to say. Democracy, I think a lot of people say he's in crisis. So from your mm -hmm. kind of standpoint, looking kind of, I get a bit of rules in, I suppose. What, how mm. would you explain the crisis of democracy and what would we do to address it? Yeah, so I think... I mean, I think there are lots of aspects of the crisis of democracy, but maybe the most urgent problem with our democratic system is the role of, of money in politics. So, you know, in 2019... I think it's just over 100 donors in the 2019 general election, just over 100 donors were responsible for nearly half of all donations to political parties, each of those donors giving nearly half a million pounds uh, on average. And I think that is just, you know, that's a ridiculous system to have in a democracy. If the, the ideal that underpins democracy is one of political equality, the idea that every citizen should have a genuinely equal opportunity to take part in and influence the political process. And, you know, if rich people can effectively buy influence over political parties, that violates that principle in a really very basic way. Um, and what, you know, one of the solutions that I put forward in the book, which I think in practical terms is actually very straightforward, would be to, uh, although politically maybe not so, but the, the idea would be to uh, limit political donations to a very low level, say in the low hundreds of pounds, and replace that with the democracy voucher system where every citizen would get uh, and a certain amount of money per year or per election cycle, say £50 per person, and they could then donate that money to the party of their choice. And I think putting that system into place would, you know, in a stroke, completely transform the incentives that our political system has. It would mean that parties, rather than having to appeal to a rich and unrepresentative donor class, have an equal incentive to appeal to citizens on a much wider level. And, you know, if that seems like a sort of slightly crazy philosopher's pipe dream, uh, it's maybe worth noting that actually that system now exists in Seattle. So since 2017, that's exactly how local elections have been run in Seattle. They've had three election cycles run on that basis. And the results are, you know, as you would expect, lots more people giving to political parties, those people often being people who didn't give or make donations before. And also those elections becoming much more competitive. So there are more candidates, incumbents are more often being beaten by challenges and overall they have a much healthier democratic system. So I think that's where I would start in reforming the democratic system. In the book, I also talk about the case for proportional representation, for more direct participation in the democratic process as well. But, um, but yeah, I think that's where I would start. Um Britain, I mean, all countries have a class system of some degree. Britain's, the British class system is often spoken about because I guess it's more embedded in that culture because there's kind of, a, you know, expresses itself culturally in lots of ways. But, mm -hmm. you know, France has a class system, Spain has a class system, so does Germany. What's striking about Britain, though, is that you are more likely to be, uh, to retain the economic circumstances of your parents than in other countries. So mm -hmm. if you're born into poverty, you're far more likely to die in poverty than would be the case for many of your Western European peers. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? What, what do you think we can do to address that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, those, the facts about uh, inequality of opportunity in the UK are really pretty striking. We can predict 
almost half of what people will earn as adults just by looking at what their parents earned when they were children. And that's one of the, the strongest connections between parental resources and what children uh, go on to earn as adults of any country in the, in the rich world. I think America is maybe the only country that can rival us for just how much influence parental background has on people's opportunities in life. And, you know, I think the problem is that although we hear a lot of talk about equality of opportunity and meritocracy, we really haven't recognized how radical an ideal that is and just, you know, the kinds of things that we need to do to put it into practice. And, you know, I think there are there are many parts to that. One thing is to tackle child poverty. You know, when children grow up in poverty, it's it's impossible for them really to make the most of the schooling that's on offer. And when parents are juggling multiple jobs and worrying about bills, it's very hard for them to give children the attention we need. And in the 2000s, when child poverty was a real focus under the new Labour government, we really did see a big decline in, in, in child poverty. And since then, unfortunately, since 2007, that's gone up really significantly. So I think the first thing is to redouble our efforts to tackle child poverty. But I also think we need to look at the school system. The most obvious thing is to target resources on disadvantaged students. And, you know, maybe that's a, that's a sort of familiar debate. The pupil premium was a policy that was introduced in the in the 2010s that, that has helped target resources towards the most disadvantaged. And that's good. And we need to do more. I think the thing that's really missing, and maybe which I should have started with, is that what we haven't done is address the role of private schools. So private schools account for just uh, just seven percent of children go to private schools, but that seven percent then go on to dominate the upper echelons of almost every uh, elite profession. You know, they account for something like two thirds of judges, about half of politicians, and and, um, and 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 newspaper columnists, a third of business leaders, and I think we've been much too reluctant to tackle that issue head on. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing, the policy that gets most often discussed is removing public subsidies like charitable status from private schools. But in Free and Equal, I argue that we should go further than that and abolish them entirely. And I think, you know, a lot of people, particularly liberals, tend to recoil from that idea as if it's the sort of first step on the road to some kind of authoritarian socialist nightmare. Um, and I think part of what I'm trying to do in the book is show that the case for abolishing private schools and integrating them into the state system actually has really impeccable liberal credentials. And I think that's part of what rules can help us with is show us how, you know, he helps us to distinguish between the freedoms that really matter, um, you know, in including some economic freedoms like freedom of occupation or choice. But then there are other freedoms like, you know, the freedom to give unlimited money to your children or to send them to a private school just doesn't have the same importance. And we can, uh, and in those kinds of situations, our commitment to equality of opportunity should really take priority. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In terms of... Um, prosperity, for example. So we've seen a huge increase in, in wealth, but obviously that wealth often ends up in the pockets of a tiny elite. What would you say, you know, how would you sum up that problem as it stands and, and what would we do about it? Yeah, so I think that is, you know, that's really our central economic problem is, uh, is the way that the benefits of economic prosperity and growth are just so incredibly unequally distributed. Um, and I think, again, Rawls uh, can help us think about this because uh, he provides a different way of thinking about what it is that we're aiming for from our economic system. I think the focus in recent decades has just been on maximizing economic growth without paying much attention to how the proceeds are distributed and questions about inequality. And Rawls gives us a different way of thinking. It's a principle that he calls the difference principle. And the basic idea is that we should try to organize our economic system in a way that's best for the least well off. So we should aim for, the, for those who have the least in society to have more than they would under any alternative system. And, and that's a, a way of thinking that recognizes that there is an important role for markets and that a, a degree of inequality can be justified. You know, higher pay for some people can, can be a good thing because it can encourage, uh, give people incentives to work hard, to study, to innovate. Um, but those inequalities are only justified if in the end, they actually end up benefiting everyone else and, and not just a small amount trickling down to those at the bottom. We want to benefit those who have the least as much as possible. And, you know, I think once we think about uh, economy that way, it becomes clear that we can't just sit back and let markets rip. There's nothing about the way that markets work, either in theory or in practice, that suggests they will lead to equally shared growth, let alone that they will, um, you know, maximize the benefits to the least well off. And, and that means, you know, putting in place a much, you know, a wider set of institutions that will bring about more widely shared prosperity. Um, and in the book, I talk about, you know, a number of, of different ways of, of doing that. I talk about the case for a universal basic income as the most, as the best way to meet basic needs whilst respecting the dignity and self-respect of the least well off. I also think we need to do more to tackle inequality at its source rather than relying on redistribution. And we could talk again about the, the different ways that we could do that. Um, I think the other thing that I would mention here, which is maybe, you know, slightly, uh, slightly separate from the question of growth and how it's distributed, is that we need to think much more about questions to do with power and control in our economic system and also dignity and self-respect. And I think, again, that's where Rawls is a very exciting thinker, because unlike many other thinkers in the liberal tradition who really have just focused on the distribution of money, Rawls is very clear that we need to think about these other things too. And again, that points to to a much richer kind of economic agenda to, and particularly to questions about the distribution of power between workers and owners and, uh, and how we could change that. That was the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is mm. a lot, you know, we, when we talk about living in a democracy and having freedom and all the rest of it, for mm. millions of people, wh whatever freedoms and liberties you have are suspended when you work at, walk into your workplace. And then you're often at the, you live at the whims of despotic 
owners, owners who have despotic power. They might re- some owners might use that autocratic power with benevolence. Mm-hmm. Others may not. Look at the draws. Like you know, when you had autocratic kings, you might you might be lucky and have a king who's relatively benevolent, or you might have one that which wasn't. But what would you do about that? How would you change the way you know? Because work is so much part of people's lives. Mm-hmm. So what what would how would you change that sphere? Yeah. So I think that's so important. And again, part of what I find so exciting about Rawls's ideas is how he points us towards these questions that have really been neglected. I think the first thing is just to recognize that the balance of power between workers and owners, the way that we've organized our economic system is a choice. It's not some kind of inevitable consequence of how markets work or a natural feature of of the economic world. The fact that we have chosen to concentrate almost all of the levers of power within firms in the hands of of owners is, is a choice. And we know it's a choice because we can look around the world and see other countries where that isn't the case, including some of our nearest neighbors. So you know, in in lots of European countries, workers and owners share, or workers have at least some degree of control over how their companies are run. And in Germany, that system, which is known as co-management or co-determination is is at its most developed. So in Germany, I think uh, workers in firms with more than 500 employees have a third of the seats on the boards that set the overall direction of the, of the company. And in the biggest firms with more than 2,000 workers, they have half of the seats on the board. And then alongside having seats on the board, they also have what are known as works councils, which are basically representative uh, bodies that workers elect representatives to that are given a degree of power over how their firms are run. And in the book, I argue that we should adopt a kind of maximal model of that system. So, you know, in the UK, we've had proposals for one or maybe two seats um, being given to workers on boards. And I think really we should be looking to go much further than that and to have workers uh, with half of the seats on boards in most, if not all companies, and also for all companies to have works councils following the German following the German model. And I think that, you know, that model would completely transform the balance of power within our workplaces. I also think it's the best way to bring about more meaningful work, which I think is something that a lot of people care about and talk about, but where hard proposals for how we could make it happen are often really missing. You know, you sort of hear people talk about meaningful work and there's a sort of wishful thinking that if only employers would just do this out of the kindness of their hearts, uh, then, then work would be better. And I think we shouldn't be so naive. If we want work to be better, we need to empower workers to shape their workplaces in ways that will be meaningful, uh, you know, meaningful and matter to them. Um, so I think that's what we should do. And I, you know, I'm an economist as well as a philosopher by training. And I think people worry that if you were to do this, somehow capitalism would fall apart, we would lose um, you know, innovation or prosperity would somehow stop. And again, I think the German model is really good evidence. There have been lots of studies showing that that just wouldn't be the case. Obviously, we were, if we were to go further than the German model, to some extent, we're stepping into the unknown. But I think that that is, you know, that's the direction that we need to be moving in. Daniel, what an absolute tour de force. We've essentially <laughs> reconstructed the whole of society from, from every level. So, yeah, I, I was like, that's morning's a challenge. Work. Obviously, easy. Um, <laughs> Free and Equal by Daniel Chandler is now out. So do get yourselves a copy. It's a brilliant read. Very, very accessible and full of all sorts of fascinating facts. Um, and uh, Daniel, please, pl- please. Thank you. I've forgotten the language. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank so you for eloquent. having me. No, thanks so much. Do like and subscribe and I'll see you all soon. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 